looking around here, and uh, please introduce yourself after the service. I don't know you. Love to get to know you, and uh, glad to be able to worship God with you. We're in 1 Kings 19, which is page 301 in that Red Pew Bible. Feel free to grab that Bible, use it, keep it. If you don't have one, it's our gift to you. And uh, so you might have come here this morning uh, seeking happiness, right? Did you come here this morning seeking happiness? How could you not? I mean, how could you not want to come here seeking happiness? It is natural for us to seek happiness. We seek happiness as we seek lunch. We'll get you out of here before then, don't worry. We seek happiness as much as we seek the next breath. It's what we do as people. So how would you finish the sentence? Happiness is. If you're like me, you might have a hard time narrowing that down. I mean, it's just there's so much that we want to make us happy. It's, it's a really big list. And happiness seems to be what Christianity is all about. I mean, I think for many people, the symbol of Christianity is not the cross. The symbol of Christianity is a smile. You watch any TV preacher, specifically like a Joel Osteen type, it's all about that million-dollar smile he has. And Christianity seems to be the way that you can be happy. And in one sense, it is. I think that many of us would probably agree that we are happier now that we are Christians than we were before we were Christians. Right? That's true. But it would be entirely too simplistic to say that becoming a Christian will make you happy all the time. Way too simple. Way too lopsided. Hear this, real, honest-to-goodness Christians are not always happy in this world. Right? We have the joy, 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 joy down in our hearts. But it might be so far down that we actually have to ask... Where? <laughs> Thank you, Kathy. And others. Okay, let's try that again. We have the joy, 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 joy down in our heart. Yes, we have to ask that because it isn't always obvious, right? We know that the bright sun of God's love is always there. But while we walk this earth, there are dark clouds that do seem to hide that from a fact that we actually appreciate and recognize and it obscures what we sometimes know. And it's always been that way for the people of God. It's not just us. So I want to encourage you this morning. If you are here and you think that Christians always have to be happy, and you've been in a church that's taught you that the main thing you're supposed to be as a Christian is smile and be nice, well, it is time for you to leave that church. They don't know their Bibles that well. Okay? Seriously. Read the whole Bible, and I want to remove from you this false guilt that you are not living up to what you think you ought to be to attend church. Sometimes we give that impression because we only sing songs that are happy and clappy. The only right answer when somebody asks, how are you doing, in Palmer Hall is, great. Because that's what a Christian's supposed to be. It's life and happiness and the, no, that's not, that's not it, wait a second, right? But we kind of merge those two. And so we're going to see in 1 Kings 19 that we can learn to better cope with circumstances that try us by looking at the life of Elijah. So turn to 1 Kings 19, we're going to look at verses 1 through 18, hear the word of God. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. 
Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as a life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and, and he arose, and he ran for his life, and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him. And said, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and he ate and he drank. And he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave, and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, they've thrown on your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go, go out, stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind an earthquake, the Lord was not in the earthquake. But after that was not uh, but after that the earthquake, the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be the king over Israel. And Elijah, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. The one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. And I will leave 7,000 in Israel, and all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Well, that's God's word, and you can clearly tell that it is not well with Elijah's soul. If you are new to Christianity, it might surprise you that there are texts like this in the Bible. And what I want to encourage you with is that unlike other religious books, this book is a strikingly honest book. And it becomes clear that when you do read the Bible, contrary to what many people might say, Christians are not always happy. In fact, I would argue this. Discouragement is the occupational hazard of all who make disciples. Let me say that again. Discouragement is the occupational hazard of all that make disciples. 
FCBC, our goal is to help every Christian realize they're a disciple. And then we want to equip every mature believer to disciple others. And so this text should be really relevant for you as we consider the cause and the cure of spiritual despair, spiritual discouragement, and perhaps even spiritual depression. We're going to start with the causes of spiritual discouragement. Just two points this morning. The cause, the cure. But underneath each of those, I have some subpoints. So here we go. Are you ready? We're going to start with the cause of spiritual discouragement. Three reasons why. Christians are not always happy. We're going to share those with you so that you would understand more about God's provision for people like us in a world like this. So here's the subpoints that causes of spiritual discouragement. Number one, Christians are not always happy because the enemy is real. Christians are not always happy because the enemy is real. Now the enemy is real, and it's obvious who it is. The enemy is Jezebel, this wicked queen. Elijah had a real enemy then. Notice that she gives him a death threat in verse 2. She says, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow. You killed 450 prophets? You know what, buddy? I'm coming after you. You are prime target number one. I got a bullseye on your chest. Now notice that her death threat is conditional. If. If I can get you... If I get a hold of you, I will kill you. And even though it's conditional and it's only a threat, it's not a warrant, it does have its effect. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid, he arose, and he ran for his life, and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. So here we have the same Elijah from 1 Kings 18, who was able to withstand 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, well, now the same prophet is being chased out of Jezreel, not by 450, no, just by one. And he runs 90 miles down to the southern kingdom, the very edge of it, Beersheba. Remember, Ahab and Jezebel are king and queen of the northern territory. So it would be like me getting in trouble, me getting scared, me having a death threat on my life, and not just running down to Washington, D.C. where my parents live. No, I run all the way to Mexico. That would be kind of like, whoo, you are really trying to play it safe here. I mean, you are leaving the country. Well, so this man, we have to remember from 1 Kings 18, ran to beat Ahab all the way to Jezreel, and now he rose to run to beat it from Jezebel. You know, fear really put Elijah on edge, and so he ran all the way to the edge of the nation of Israel. And so Christians are not always happy because the enemy is real. So what about today? Do you have any enemies that are as real as Jezebel? Not just big enemies, small enemies. But we have big ones. We have universities that ban Christians from sharing the gospel. We have family members or families that persecute members that convert to Christianity. Corporations and governments that seem to censor and, and have to uh, make it illegal to be a Christian. Oh, we have enemies in this world. Just in our own nation, right? There is the enemy of abortion. Fornication. Pornography. Homosexuality. Gender reassignment. Racism. Greed, all of those are enemies of the Christian church. But here's the thing. 
We can't consider any individual an enemy because the church is only comprised of ex-enemies of God. You can't look at any enemy out there that's a person and say that they're my enemy because who are you? You are an ex-enemy of God. That's who we all are. And so our very real enemies as Christians are also very real objects of our love. Because the Bible teaches in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that God showed his love for us and that while we were sinners, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. And so we love our enemies because as a church, we know what it was like to be an enemy of God. And so Christ tells us in Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Now, right off the bat, in a sermon, if you're our guest, it might seem jarring to hear this enemy language. But it's a very real question, and it's a word that the Bible uses, and so I'm not afraid to use it. I want to use it delicately with you. But if you're here and you're a non-Christian, you should think, am I an enemy of God? That's our most important question this morning, because James 4.4 4 tells us, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The Bible says there is no neutrality. You know, being an enemy of the people of God is one thing. Oh, those Christians. But being an enemy of God is way more than any sane person would want. And so look into what does it mean to become an ex-enemy of God. Anyone here might be able to share with you how they once were an enemy of God and how they became an ex-enemy of God by Jesus Christ. So number two, Christians are not always happy because emotions are real. The enemy is real, so are our emotions Our emotions are real. We have to understand in this story there's a lot more going on here than just a personal death threat. If we were to take a moment and just walk in Elijah's shoes, we would know that what is going on here is a loss of all of his hopes. It is the frustration of all of his desires because he's finally realizing that Israel will not turn back to Jehovah. And guess what? Elijah feels like after all that he is done, I've done everything I could do. I mean, I called down fire from heaven to prove who is the true God. If that doesn't work, what will? So what? I mean, the rock is just in too deep to be dislodged. I give up. And so Elijah thinks the people of Israel for a moment might stand with him. But then when he is reviled by Jezebel, no one stands up for him. There is no revolt. And so he begins to feel that as long as Ahab and Jezebel are in control of his country, the country will never ultimately turn back to Jehovah. And he is discouraged and he is despairing. And so he believes, what's the point? Give up. We'll never change. I mean, emotionally, he goes from mountain high in chapter 18 to valley low in chapter 19. And did you know, church, there are actually commentators out there that want to say that this book is fictional because who would put chapter 19 after chapter 18? I think this is a proof that this really is an inspired word because who hasn't had a mountain high experience And then the next day, begin to question and curl up and die and say, what's the point? I'll never make a difference. What pastor hasn't ever preached fire on Sunday and wants to quit on Monday? 
Let me say it again for parents, disciple makers. Discouragement is the occupational hazard of all who make disciples. You get into ministry and you think about all that could happen. We just do this thing and it will make this difference in this person's life. And then you realize change doesn't come that quick. They're still bound to their sin. They reject your kindness. They spit in your face. They take advantage of you. And after years and years of parenting, shepherding, you begin to wonder, what's all this about? And our emotions can get the best of us. Look at verse 13. I'm not verse 13, verse 3. Sorry about that. The first thing that Elijah does as his emotions are real is he leaves his servant behind. He runs to Beersheba, 90 miles away, but then notice that he left, up, he left his servant. Now, it would be hard for us probably to realize that a servant does not mean that he was rich. We think, if I had a servant, I'd be, <laughs> I'd be rich. That's not the idea. You see, he only had a servant because he was a prophet. And so letting go of his servant is another way of saying, my career is over. I quit the ministry. I don't need someone to partner with me anymore. And so track how this works. This is the progression in his life. Perhaps it's the same in yours. A little bit of opposition, exhaustion, isolation, dashed expectations all march you to the dungeon of depression. Oppression, exhaustion, isolation, dashed expectations. How you thought it would be? All march you to despair, discouragement, depression. Notice the progression in his life in verse 4. And he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. And he came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die. Saying, it is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. He's emotionally despondent. I mean, with an absence of interest. I don't need to be in ministry anymore. Now it becomes a crisis of meaning. No interest. No meaning in life. He considers himself no better than his father's. He's not going to make the prophet hall of fame. I mean, where he thought would happen was that he'd have this, this gold plaque because fire came down from heaven through Elijah's prayer. And it turned the people's hearts and there was a revival. But now Elijah knows that he can't make the people turn back to the covenant. Listen to his indictment in verse 10. We hear this covenant language. He said, I've been very jealous of the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Wow. You know, his painful times reveal his unfulfilled expectations. Have you noticed that in your life? You don't realize how hold you how much you are actually grabbing hold of something for your comfort, for your hope, until pain takes it away, and you begin to realize, ooh, I really did have a different expectation for how this was going to look. So let me ask you this question. Have you ever sensed that God was not on your script? I don't know how any of this makes sense. God, this is not how I would do it. Have you ever wondered... Why God isn't doing something more than what he seems to be doing? I thought you would change things by now. Faith family, you have to ask yourselves, what assumptions do you make 
about how the Lord ought to govern your life? What assumptions do you make about how the Lord ought to govern your life? What assumptions do you make about your childhood? The assumptions you make about your childhood about the kind of childhood that you should have had. Or the kind of singleness that should have been given you. Or the kind of marriage that he should have given you. The kind of child that he should have given you. The, child, the kind of career he should have given you. Right? All of those assumptions and expectations can lead us to discouragement and depression. You know, and what most discouraged people and depressed people don't realize is that even though their feelings say something... And oftentimes something very important, hear this, feelings also lie. Feelings also lie. Feelings tempt us and lie to us by oversimplifying. Therefore, misinterpretations about life abound. Which is why we come to our third reason. Third reason why Christians aren't always happy. Here it is. It is because the Lord is more faithful than you can see. It sounds weird, doesn't it? Why are Christians unhappy? Because the Lord is more faithful than you can see. Here's how it works. The spiritual battle is intense, right? Christians have a real enemy. Real pain comes in from a real enemy, and we have real feelings. Ouch! And Satan is an opportunist. He uses our pain, he uses our feelings to get us to cast doubt on God's care and God's control. And so our feelings begin to lie to us that God must not care. And God's not really in control. Notice how Elijah's feelings lie to him and distort his perspective. Look at verse 10 again. He says, I have been very jealous of the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. They seek my life to take it away. Do you see what a study diet is? He has a steady diet of self-righteousness. I've been very jealous and zealous for the Lord. He has a steady diet of self-pity. They've killed all the prophets and they even tried to come after me also. No one has it as bad as I do. And he also has some self-importance. I, even I only, am left. I'm the last one. I mean, Elijah, if you could just kind of get out of your self-focus, how could you run from death only to pray that God would kill you? Why would you do that if you actually believed you were the only one left? It means that the gospel, the covenant of grace, would end with you. That's what happens when we are focused on our self-righteousness, our self-pity, and our self-importance in a time of pain it will leave you feeling abandoned by God. You have no room to see God because you're so big. Your life's all about you. He's not in control, or why would this happen to me? He doesn't care, or how can he let this happen to me? Christians are not always happy because the Lord is more faithful than you see. Faith him, and did you know that God can see all of your work? But you can't see all of his. And at this point in the story, Elijah is discouraged, he's despairing, he's depressed because he doesn't know all that God is up to. He thinks it's end, and therefore he wants to quit, and he wants to die. So how different would Elijah's prayers have been 
if he would have known the end from the beginning. Verses 15 through 18 are the end of the story where God shows his faithfulness in the future. You're going to go and appoint Haziel. You're going to go and appoint Jehu. You're going to pass the mantle to Elijah. And there's still 7,000 others that haven't bailed the knee. That's the future. But in the present, how would Elijah's prayers have changed if he would have known the end from the beginning? I can hear God questioning him like this. Elijah, would you still want to pray for me to take your life? If you had known that Jezebel would die in 2 Kings. Would you like to still pray, Elijah, for me to take your life? Because of the death threat of Jezebel. If you would have known that I've issued a death warrant through Haziel, Jehu, and Elisha. No one's going to escape their sword. Judgment's coming. I I hear what you're saying, Elijah. There's going to be mercy. There's going to be judgment. Would you still like to pray for me, Elijah, to take your life if you would have known that you have a mantle to pass and the ministry will continue through Elijah, Elisha? There'll be a school of prophets and the work will grow and increase in the next generation. Wouldn't you like to see that, Elijah, or do you still want to die now? Oh, and would you like to pray, Elijah, for me to take your life if you would have known that you were not alone? You know, we're the only Christians. We're the only true church. We're the only ones left in America. Would you like to see, faith family, that there are 7,000 others that haven't bowed the knee? Well, praise God that the God who answers the prayer of 1 Kings 18 is the God who does not answer the prayer of 1 Kings 19. Isn't that supposed to kind of set yourself up as you read the Bible as a huge comparison? Elijah prays in 1 Kings 18, God answers. Elijah has his prayers turn inward in in chapter 19, and God does not answer them, which means this. My dear brother and sister, do you know that there is so much more work for you to do before you get to heaven? There is so much more for you to live for. There's so much more that God wants to do in and through you for his glory. And so as you think about your disappointments and your discouragements and where you want to quit making disciples, because discouragement is the occupational hazard of all those that entangle their lives with others for the good of the gospel. Well, now as you look at those, you begin to realize, wow, Lord, you know, it's just the material that is in your hand, and you're that chief artisan. Right? I mean, God is the ultimate craftsman, and his toolbox is bigger than Cam White's. If you've ever seen his basement, he lets you in there, you're going to see tools galore. But God can do more than Cam can do with the tool because God has unlimited resources to fashion you. He can use your health. He can use your family. He can use your career. He can use your neighbor. He can use the cubicle person that you share it with. He can use your kids. All of that where you are disappointed and where you are discouraged to shape you and to mold you into looking like Christ. And when you have the eyes to see that God is more faithful then you can see, then you will praise God with the Apostle Paul. Paul says in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments! How unscrutable are his ways! You will cry out, God, great is your faithfulness. You are more faithful than I could have seen. So we need a perspective corrective. But how does God bring Elijah to that point? I wonder how you picture God dealing with 
the discouraged, depressed prophet Elijah. You know, you messed up, so you're a screw-up. Next. I'll find somebody that can be faithful. Next. I don't have time for this. I thought you'd get on with it by now. I still have to hold your hand. We gotta go over this again. Next. Well, God, no blame, and there's no shame. And notice how God begins to cure the spiritual despair of Elijah through deed and word. Point number two, the cure. And I hope that you heard that I said that God is going to cure him both in deed and in word, and perhaps that order matters. If you've been a Christian a while, you probably have heard the phrase, we want to share the gospel in word and deed. And that order kind of matters. But here, I intentionally said the deed and the word, because we have to notice the cure here begins with, here's the first sub-point, we see the kindness of God in the power of a soft touch. How does God begin to cure Elijah? The kindness of the Lord can be seen in the power, don't think about that, in a soft touch. Let's look at verses 5 through 8. And he lay down, and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. How God treats Elijah is unfathomably wise and more kind than he deserves, isn't it? And if you're here and you are someone who shepherds others, if you have souls in your care, if you are a disciple maker, it is always wise for you to look and see how God deals with those who are in trouble. Did you notice that God does not begin with a lecture? Oh, Christians love to teach. That's why we give so much time to the teaching of God's word. But did you notice that God does not begin with a word, but with a touch? God does not begin with the spiritual problem right away, but he addresses the physical problem first. Faith family, God saw that Elijah did not need a counselor. Elijah needed a chef. You see, God becomes a cake maker, and then he becomes a bed maker before he becomes a plan maker or a this-is-the-way maker. Oh man, how much we need to hear that, church. Because we get that wrong all the time. We're tempted to say to a discouraged, depressed friend, just do the next thing. You know, just put one foot in front of the other. Come on, snap out of it. Let's go. Oh, thanks for that. Snap out of it. I mean, like, there's a switch in here. That's all I, I didn't know it was that easy. Like, thank you. Profound. You know what you really need? Is you need a devotional book from Pastor Josh. Let's read that together. How do you love a discouraged and depressed person? Well, the angel of the Lord does not come with a talk, but with a touch. And the model we have here from this angel of the Lord is faithful, consistent love. That's important. Faithful, consistent love is how 
you help someone who is discouraged and depressed. Did you notice that the angel of the Lord returns to him how many times? Two. Which teaches us this. There is no quick fix to discouragement. We've got to be in it for the long haul. A faithful, consistent presence that helps point someone to Christ. And do you see what the angel of the Lord provides? It's physical food, but your mind should be going off because you're good students of God's word. What happens in 1 Kings 17 that we already learned about? Elijah comes to a widow who has no food, but specifically she has no cake and she has no oil in her jar. And it just so happens that God, as he's wanting to remind Elijah of his provision and faithfulness in the past, brings Elijah a warm cake. Oh, ding, 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 ding. And a jar, same word, of water. And Elijah takes the cake and the warm jar and begins to go, wow, yeah, Lord, I forgot that you fed me with raven's claws in 17, and now you're going to feed me by angel hands in 19. Great is thy faithfulness. You are more faithful than I ever could have seen. And faith family, would you consider, if you're here and you're discouraged or depressed, I want you to know that we're in your corner. I want to ask you this. This might seem weird. Do you see how heroic Elijah is? Heroic? Chapter 18, yes. Chapter 19, not so much. Really? Let me ask you this question. Have you ever done something when you've been completely unmotivated? Most of what we do is because we want to do it. And so as we care for depressed and discouraged people, let's not disdain the day of small things. Elijah rose, ate, drank, and slept. And if Elijah really all he wanted to do was die, then faith family, would you consider that arising, getting out of bed, eating, drinking, is actually an act of faith culminating in a 40-day walk? So if you're here this morning, and you are discouraged and depressed. I just want to acknowledge how heroic it is that for you, all that you had to do just to get yourself here. Parents, where you are discouraged about your children and by faith, you have to welcome them in the door and greet them. Even though you might know they will reject you and turn you off and ignore you or be rude to you. It is a big act of faith just to say hello sometimes. And Christian spouse... When you are discouraged and you are depressed and you are not feeling it, I want to acknowledge it is an act of faith where you, even out of love for your spouse, sleep together. And how hard that is. When you're unmotivated, something that might just seem routine and normal for everybody actually is some big steps forward of trusting God that he says I should do these things. I'm going to trust God with the results. So perhaps eating, drinking, sleeping, and a long, long walk is more spiritual than we realize. And if you're here and you're discouraged, would you please acknowledge that it is God's kindness? Would you see it? Look up to God's kindness and see that he sent you a person to minister to you. I imagine that at times when somebody comes to your house and you don't want them there and they're trying to encourage you, you just want to give them every excuse to get off the porch. 
You want to try to find every reason why you don't need a thing. God in his kindness sends you a friend to minister to you. God in his kindness gives you your daily bread. God in his kindness will give you sleep. As you go to bed tonight, when's the last time you actually said, God, it is your kindness that you gave me sleep. And it is God's kindness to give us a long, long walk back to the place of covenant. Hey, family, don't underestimate the power of a soft touch to lift the fog of depression. So let me ask you this. What does how you treat those that are discouraged say about your biblical worldview? That's a tough question. But how you treat people that are discouraged, what does it actually say about what you believe? Because how you treat people actually shows what you value. Really? You got that? So if I come to you and I'm discouraged, say, hey, Pastor Josh, listen to this, this podcast. My problems are all spiritual, and the right knowledge will solve my problems. If you come to me and I'm discouraged, you say, hey, Josh, you just need to go out there and exercise. My problems are all physical. If I just get the right things in place and I exercise and have a good diet and get some sleep, I'll be better. I come to you and I'm discouraged. You say, Pastor Josh, just talk to me. I'll listen. It'll say here, just, just me and you'll be safe. My problems are all psychological. The Bible here clearly shows that we can't just divide it up in a clean, neat pie. God deals with his heart, his head, his hands. He deals with food. He deals with his physical life. He deals with his emotional life. God is in it all. And so I just want to say thank you, faith family. I think there is something that it does say about us as a whole on how you care for those that are discouraged and depressed and maybe weary. And I want to say thank you for putting it in our contract and making it happen, even with finances, for Pastor Pat and I every seven years to have a sabbatical. Because we're weary. And at times we just need to eat, sleep, get up, take a long journey back to the place of covenant where God's been faithful to us and remind ourselves why we got in the ministry where at times we look out and say, God's not faithful or else why wouldn't these people have been? Now we love you and we can't wait to come back and see you. But thank you that you want to care not just for my soul by giving me a book, but care for my body by saying take some rest. If you want to know more, there's a conference coming up. It's going to be simulcast here at the church. It's in April. It's called Responding to Suffering. It's a look at the book of Job that Pastor Pat and Allison found out about. And we're going to offer it here. But when you're plagued by crushing sadness, you need more than a good meal, a good friend, and a good night's sleep. You need more. And so our second and our final point is that we need to see the grace of the Lord in the power of a soft whisper. The kindness of God and the power of a soft touch, the grace of God and the power of a soft whisper. In verses 9 through 12, God comes to Elijah, not in a uh, wind, not in an earthquake, not in a fire, but how does God come to him? In a soft whisper. He comes to him in a soft whisper. Now, as we look at this, we have to understand, do you know where Elijah actually is? We found out in verse 8 that Elijah went to Mount Horeb, the Mount of God. Do you know where Mount Horeb is? As a good Bible student, you look at your study notes and it says Mount Sinai. Oh, now we're beginning to think Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai, the place of covenant where God made a covenant with Moses. And God is trying to show Elijah here all these similarities to help him connect the dots between his life and Moses. So, see if you can track with me. Like Moses, Elijah fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. See that? Pretty cool. 
Like Moses, Elijah was in despair because he was crushed by the sinfulness of people. Deuteronomy 9. Just like Moses, Elijah stood on the mountain when the wind and the lightning and the earthquake and fire came down on the mountain. Exodus 19. Like Moses, Elijah stood in a cave, a cleft of a rock. Some commentators want to even entice you to think, was Elijah in the exact same spot as Moses? How cool would that be? And so all of this is happening. And then it says, and God passed by. Well, what happens in Exodus 33? And the glory of the Lord passed by Moses as he had him in a cliff of a rock. And so here is Elijah, and he says, go stand on the mountain. But he doesn't have the courage to go out there and stand. He's still in the cave as God passes by in the wind. He's still in the cave as God passes by in the earthquake. He's still in the cave as God passes by in the fire. He doesn't actually come out of the cave until God whispers. The only other question that he asks him is, what are you doing here? You know, it's always good as you're helping those that are discouraged to actually ask them, how can I help you? Don't say it like this, but essentially you're asking, what am I doing here? I'm glad you called me over. I'm happy to help, but what am I doing here? It's just good to clarify what you think you're going to be doing and what they think they need from you. Because how many times do we get it wrong? I'm over there to do this. And they're saying, I really just need you to do that. I just need you to cry with me and to hug me. I didn't need you to give me a lecture. Well, anyways, why does God speak from a whisper and not the fire? Well, Elijah's life has not turned out the way he expected. Has it for you? Probably not. You know, Elijah thought the best way to deal with the people of God who broke the covenant of God is were in all of those amazing, powerful things. Wind, earthquake, fire. This is a place where I get some more fire. I ran out of that in chapter 18. Let's bring that again in chapter 19 on these people who have broken your covenant and haven't returned. It's time to have fire come down on them. But God comes to Elijah in a whisper. Why? Because God's saying to Elijah, my plans aren't your plans. <laughs> oh, Elijah, you can't put me in a box. Your plan isn't working out, but what makes you think that I don't have a plan? Is it because my plan isn't your plan? Just because I don't come in fire doesn't mean I can't accomplish the same work through a whisper. You know... God does not always use the means by which we suppose that he will use. God, this is how you're going to reach my kid. God, this is how you're going to renew this. God, this is how you're going to do that. He's powerful to work in a fire or a whisper. His power is in the whisper of his word, which means that God will work by whatever means he pleases. And that's what Elijah needs to see, that God is not the divine butler of Elijah. Faith family, we are his instrument. He is not our instrument. We are in his hands. He is not in our hands. He came in a whisper. He came with grace. And he came gentle and lowly. And you might be saying, God, gentle and lowly? I mean, how is this world going to repent? I mean, you came 2,000 years ago in a baby born in a manger in Palestine, and you died as a crucified carpenter. 
Could we make it a little more clear? Like how about writing it in the sky? How about some amazing proofs? That's how you're gonna win the world to yourself. Not this whole obscure thing. That was way too gentle and lowly. And you call the church by saying through God's word, the word, Jesus Christ, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. That's how you're gonna save people? Do you hear his gentle voice? Have you made time to hear his voice? And it's through his voice that he draws people to himself. And so the Lord's kindness. If you're discouraged this morning, I pray that you've seen the Lord's kindness in a touch, the Lord's grace in a whisper, so that your soul would not say, my God has forsaken me. My God has abandoned me. His grace for me is no more, because that is not true. You know, Jezebel sent a messenger to get Elijah to run. God sent a messenger to get Elijah to rest. Jezebel sends him a word to run, and God sends him a word to return. So a soft whisper, a soft touch, replaces Elijah's hopelessness with a hopeful work. And if God's grace was sufficient for Elijah, then it will be sufficient for all disciple makers wherever you are discouraged or depressed by the trials of ministry, which is for all of us. So afflicted saint, to Christ draw near. Christ says, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. If you're not a Christian, come find out what that means. Let's stand and sing our closing.